You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We are not coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center like we normally do. We're coming to you from my home uh, and the council member's home or office? Home today. Okay, that's, that's the right thing to do. Uh, I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media at Council of DC. Uh, we are, um, first of all, in an odd situation due to the fact that we're doing this virtually and not in person at DC Radio. Um, it's also odd in that I've uh, had a chance to sit down with the other 12 Council members uh, on time to multiple, whereas this is literally the first time I'm uh, meeting and speaking with uh, Council Member Pinto. So uh, this is particularly unusual, but uh, welcome to the council and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And it's so nice to, to meet you and put a face to the amazing communications work and Twitter presence that you are. It is the best Twitter account in the city in my view. So if anyone doesn't follow it, you should certainly go follow Council of DC. Um, it is very well done. So great to see you. Thank you. It's much appreciated. We're, we're closing in little by little on our uh, 51,000 um, statehood Twitter followers goal. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're, we're getting there. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously uh, with COVID, uh, there's so much terrible that comes with COVID. But um, folks are, I think, able to pay more attention to local politics and politics in general because everyone's at home. So there's a little bit of a, a tiny civics bump that is coming out of this otherwise uh, nasty time we're in. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, so folks, generally, if you if you've listened to the show before, you know our first interview with each council member is kind of a getting to know you biographical, what's the story behind the person uh, before they get to the council. And then subsequent interviews are more policy driven and more council related. But um, so anyway, that is what uh, today's show is gonna be. And uh, the first thing that, um, well, a couple of things jumped out at me in your, bi in your bio. One is from, and I haven't heard anyone ask this question, maybe I just missed it, but with your last name, uh, Pinto, what is your what is your family history or genealogy? What what is the um, sort of the heritage of that name? Pinto is Italian, and so the majority of my family on both sides are Italian and Irish combination. And have been in the country a few generations, or yes, near, been here a couple of generations now. Um, I get asked often if I'm Brazilian um, or. I've gotten a couple of different uh, different questions about race and background throughout the campaign, perhaps because of the name as well. So I, I don't think anyone has officially asked me that. So I'm glad that's that's clarified. Okay. 
And and do you do, does any uh, Italian speaking ability come with that heritage, or is it too too many generations removed? No, we do not speak Italian. I did speak Spanish growing up, um, and uh, studied Spanish in in school, and so I. But but not Italian. My sister can speak a little bit of Italian, gotcha. but because she studied it, not because we spoke in the home. But the other thing I had noticed was I was looking at your um, academic background, the earlier part of your academic background, and I saw that you had gone to the, um, your degree is from Cornell's, uh, you have a degree in business and hospitality administration from Cornell. And the couple of people I know that uh, have similar backgrounds were our hardcore hospitality industry people, real restaurant and, or hotel management people. Right. So I'm curious how you came to pursue that degree. And then I'm guessing something changed after that because you went a bit of a different direction. So yes, I went to the, what we kind of call colloquially as the hotel school at Cornell. And it's really a business degree geared towards the hospitality industry. And so I was always very committed to service, even as a, as a young person, whether it would be Kind of public service or just serving quite literally um, always wanted to be you know, cooking for people and um, serving meals and um, always enjoyed every piece of the kind of hospitality service component and really liked the idea of having a background and grounding in business and so the hospitality school seemed like a great fit when i went to visit cornell i was so enamored with the place it was also a really unique opportunity where the the school itself um, was such a specialized program and you got to know all of the teachers very well, um, all of your classmates very well intimately, but then you're part of this larger university um, exposed to so many other students. So I was really excited for that program. I, you know, I, a lot of people who I went to school with think similarly to you that that's it's such a strange pivot to then uh, become a lawyer from that background and then now be in public service to me it really is kind of all aligned with service and providing service, whether that is through the hospitality industry or through my legal training background or through now on the council. And is that the school that I'm thinking of that has like an actual functioning hotel lobby and a restaurant for mm -hmm. people? We have a Rearing. hotel and restaurant, yep, which was great because we had an opportunity to work in essentially every different job title within the hotel and the restaurant, which is great exposure as many of the students go into that industry um, to figure out what works well, what doesn't. And I'm a believer that then when you go in to serve in, in any capacity, you have the broader context understanding of how each piece fits together. So that was a, a wonderful experience for me. So there was, there was never a dream to open a restaurant or, or run a hotel. It was always a broader service goal. I had more of a dream to open senior living communities, which is still a dream of mine. I worked at Brookdale Senior Living out of New York. They're the largest senior living community provider in the country. Um, and so I always loved the idea of tying in the hospitality component, really making sure that it's a very well-run, organized operation, but providing excellent care and service to seniors. That was, that was my, and still is, um, a dream. Um, how have you, how has that focus on hospitality and particularly the, um, 
general focus on hospitality, the uh, sort of restaurant understanding of how restaurants and hotels operate, and, and then also the angle of senior care that you mentioned. How have those uh, played out in your, your uh, short time on the council so far? So I right. think in my very long two-month tenure, <laughs> um, seasoned expert. Um, no, it's, I mean, how you expect them to play out in the future. If that's absolutely, and it, it has already become hugely relevant. You know, Ward 2 is a major economic driver of our city and our region. And the contributions that the hospitality industry provides to our city um, is really huge and is really struggling right now. And so I've been really grateful to work with so many in the hospitality industry um, at every level to figure out how can we make sure that workers are kept safe and paid fairly? How can we ensure that the managers are operating an environment that is sustainable and can have access to outdoor seating um, in a way that gives them some transparency and continuation of those regulations into the winter and the spring, which we're working on now, um, to the owners of the hotels who are figuring out if they're looking to sell their property or how they can pay their real property taxes. And so the understanding of each level and the collaboration um, has been really helpful to me to have that background in hospitality as we move forward on the, our recovery efforts. So it, it certainly has become, been relevant so far and I anticipate will continue being a, a productive partnership. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to bond yet with, uh, with CFO uh, Jeff DeWitt, but his background, uh, you know, he has a background in the hotel industry. And I remember when he did his first briefing on COVID, it was one of the last days I was in the office, uh, physically in the office. And I don't remember the exact metric that he was saying that hotels expected their business to drop X percent. And that below that percent, they can't make their mortgage payments. Um, and it was just kind of, I mean, he was keeping an eye out for the whole economy, but it was just an interesting example of how his past experience in an industry let him know things about what they needed to survive that they might not have, uh, might not have shared their normal meeting. So. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And it touches so much. So it touches tourism. It touches the, our local restaurants when our hotel occupancy is down. It touches the workers and their ability to go to work. Um, it really touches every piece of the marketplace. And so a, a grounding in hospitality and the contributions that our hotels provide to our city um, is, is really important as we work to recover from this crisis together. What is your sense of, and I realize you're, you're clearly not the CFO, but what, what is your sense of how well businesses like that will be able to bounce back? We're already seeing a number of businesses close. Um, do, do, you, do you have a positive outlook for, for the future of hospitality businesses in the next year? I am very concerned. I continue to encourage all of our hospitality partners to be as creative as possible um, as they can. So the streeteries and outdoor spaces are a great example of, of ensuring that they can continue increasing their revenue and serving patrons and doing so in a safe and socially distanced manner. Right now, as I mentioned, we're working to try to expand those through the remainder of the year so that the restaurants can have some consistency and understanding that if they go out and purchase a heat lamp or outdoor seating, that that won't be a wasted investment that will be gone in two months. 
Um, it also depends on which piece of the industry it is. So our, some of our local uh, wine and beer shops are increasing their sales because more people are consuming alcohol to, to or purchasing alcohol rather to consume in the home as opposed to purchasing at restaurants. And so making sure that we're not applying a one size fits all approach to all of our recovery and to um, incentivize people to really go out and continue spending money if they're in a position to be spending money so that these businesses don't close down. And so we're looking at, at all the, the myriad of ways to do that, whether it's through the tax code, through additional grant money, or through lowering uh, licensing and regulatory burdens. Yeah, it's, it's such a tough balance because there's various policy demands and uh, um, you, you have to weigh them. I, I was reading in uh, Paris, they recently banned the outdoor heat lamps, the giant heat lamps that allow you to use patio space year round, because apparently one of them puts out as much emissions as an SUV or something like that. And clearly the environment's a priority, but conversely the businesses, if they, you know, we're discouraging people as much as we can from eating indoors. And then if you take away the way to, you know, have additional square footage outdoors due to a ban like that, um, you know, it's, wow. it's so hard because you're really having to pick economy over environment in a case like that. And it's, it's a challenge. How, how, do you, how do you weigh when there's kind of competing demands like that, different constituencies? Uh, how, how would you balance out uh, that kind of, a, not that exact situation, but that kind of situation? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, to me, I always come back to community input. I think that it's really important that we have input before we make the decisions, as sometimes we see the inverse happening, where the decision's made and then the community is invited to weigh in. Um, and so we've been trying to do that in additional ways, not just expecting people to come testify at a hearing, but reaching out to them directly via phone, computer, in person, so that we can hear directly from our constituencies about their preferences for issues like that. When it comes to um, the example you gave of needing to allow restaurants to sit outside, but the heat lamps being terrible for the environment, that to me is a, is a matter of creativity. How can we keep patrons warm without having a detrimental harm in the environment? How can we ensure restaurants have additional blankets um, are there other more environmentally friendly ways to have candles or, or open, open fires that are less harmful? So um, that, that example, I would think, is less of a necessary either or, and hopefully we'd be able to come up with a solution that works for each of those demanding concerns. Now, the other piece of your education background is a law degree. Uh, and I had a, I remember having a conversation with Councilmember Robert White, who has a law degree. I, I always, one of my favorite things to do is figure out what makes a perfect council member. Is it a staff background? Is it a Hill background? Is it a law degree? Is it an AMC background? Is it a business background? Um, and we have interesting examples of different combinations of that. But uh, what what is your what do you think your law degree brings to you as a council member that that other council members might not have? I feel so grateful every day for my background and legal training. I think it is very helpful to me personally as a council member. I mean, one one very clear way is in law school, we're trained to think about the other side. So I remember for certain cases, I would stay up all night long practicing and, and getting my argument down for why I thought 
that the, this case should come out this way and give my best presentation possible, then a professor would say, okay, now that you've done that, argue on the other side. Um, and that consistent feedback and training and requiring us to think about what the other viewpoint is, um, I think is not only important in politics, but is important in governing because it allows us to plug holes in legislation um, and think through, okay, what would the ramifications of this be? What would someone who's not supportive of this legislation say? And which of those comments are worthy of considering and hopefully compromising on? And so I think it makes me um, certainly a much more effective and, and reasoned lawmaker. I also think law school is helpful in training us to respond to the question asked. Um, and that can be, you know, in a context like this with an interview. Um, but, you know, when we're dealing with an agency or dealing with a piece of legislation or dealing with a constituent, not just saying the kind of same old sentence or two that you think sounds good or that you're used to saying, but really being directly responsive. And it comes back to this customer service component um, of my background and that I think all of my colleagues share is this desire to provide excellent customer service. And I think being responsive and direct with our constituents is, is a huge piece of that. So I'm, I'm very grateful for my my legal background, certainly in my experience at the DC Attorney General's office as well. How does your sort of nuanced, uh, detailed thinking of both sides, uh, well-prepared legal scholar side interact with the sort of the making of sausage lawmaking that you've begun to see uh, happen and participate in uh, like the budget process? I feel like there's sort of a rigor and a structure to legal thought and then boom, the budget happens, you know, during a pandemic on Zoom. Uh, Did you just, do you recoil at that? Are you, uh, is there something in it that appeals to you? What, what is your uh, reaction to that situation? Well, I was really grateful to have the opportunity to participate in the budget process this year. This is a year like we haven't experienced in the city and there's so much need um, and we were dealing with such a revenue shortfall that it was really a, a creative challenge to be able to participate in that to try to address all of the needs and increase the social support programs that we need while also balancing the budget and trying not to raise taxes and so I'm really grateful that I was able to participate in that process that to me was more of a an exercise in negotiations than um, kind of critical thinking on either side, I think. You know, one example is with the advertising tax. The 3% advertising tax, as opposed to being recommended as an amendment, was embedded into the budget. And so the $18 million of projected revenue had already been apportioned to various programs. And so I believed uh, that it was very important to remove the ad tax because I thought it was going to have a terrible detrimental effect on our small businesses and our news organizations that need more supports right now, not, not more burdensome regulation and taxation. And so removing it wasn't just a matter of voting against an amendment. We had to find the $18 million. And at that point, many of our colleagues had uh, programs that were very important to all of us to make sure we're funded. And so that was a very interesting exercise in negotiation and speaking to each of our colleagues and finding out what was most important to everybody um, and working with the chairman's office and the budget office on coming up with a solution that 
that worked um, was a really, was a, a good experience, but also was a good reflection, I think, of collaboration um, when we can all come together and just be very communicative with our respective priorities. And the, 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 the sort of the chaos and the cliffhanger-ness, like, you know, the sudden adjournment and can we find the money and let's come back to it. Is that, um, is that something that you uh, relish, that you uh, make you crazy or just it's somewhere in the middle? <laughs> I certainly don't relish it. I mean, to me, it was less surprising because I hadn't slept in about seven days. I had combed through every single line of the budget trying to identify the 18 million to remove on the phone with all my colleagues all through the weekend. And so I, um, to me, it wasn't the first time that that had come up. Okay, well, we'll now remove it. I was really grateful that folks were interested in getting it removed um, and that we were going forward. I don't think it should have been included in the first place. So I certainly wouldn't say I relish the way it happened, um, but I was very grateful to have the opportunity to work with my colleagues on, on ensuring that it was removed. Um, now let's move on to your, uh, your time with uh, Carl Racine. Um, how, how do you uh, feel about the fact that people are saying that uh, the attorney general has his has his little Carl Racine mafia that's being set up in the core of the council between the, the council members, White, yourself, um, possible future additions. Um, how, how, does, how do you react to that concept? Well, I don't want to laugh at it because I understand people have concerns and everyone's concern is justified and deserves a, a straightforward answer. But to me, it is a little bit funny when people make that claim. The Attorney General is running a, an agency and he attracts people who are committed to public service, I think, um, to his agency. All of my colleagues, that was true when I was in the tax, the tax section of the commercial division and it was true when I was the Assistant Attorney General for Policy and Legislative Affairs. The people who I worked with were incredibly committed to the city to providing excellent public service um, and he is a wonderful mentor to the lawyers and other employees who work in the agency. And so I guess it's not that surprising to me that people who have worked in that agency have then sought to pursue public office themselves. Um, I will say as it relates to my relationship with the Attorney General, I am so grateful for his mentorship um, and for him really giving me the exposure he did while I was at the office to so many different issues and allowing me to really do do the job I always kind of wanted to do. And I'm so happy that I have this opportunity now to be on the council and to carry forward all those lessons that I learned. Um, but he, just like everybody, is incredibly fair and, and understands that I'm going to be fair and rational and consider all viewpoints. And um, I believe that that's the same way his other former colleagues will treat him when he's before them. I look forward to working with him. When you were in the role uh, Assistant Attorney General for Policy and Legislative Affairs, did you interact uh, with the council members extensively in that role? Because you were kind of a liaison to the council in a way there, mm -hmm. weren't you? Yes, I worked with the council on a daily basis in my last job. Um, I was most often coordinating with the 
Judiciary Committee because that was usually what our proposals were before. Um, but we worked on a number of issues with, with every council member, um, either whether, whether it was a bill originating out of the council and providing additional legal sufficiency review or ensuring that it was going to be enforceable and implementable and that we had the attorneys available to actually enforce the law as written, but also on laws that were originating out of our office around small business protection and prosecuting hate crimes um, and tenants' rights. And so it was a really great experience and exposure to me as well to all of my new colleagues now and working with them and their teams but also on the entire legislative process from meeting with a community member, to having the inception of an idea, to drafting, to figuring out the other viewpoint, to figuring out the enforcement component, to having a hearing, getting witnesses, getting a bill passed. And so that was really helpful, um, a really helpful experience to me to ensure that I can be hitting the ground running uh, as I got started this summer and as we head into the fall. And during your time working in the, in the AG's office, what, what about it, what energized you? What, what got you out of bed in the morning each day? What, what part of it really got you going and spoke to your service? Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, so much. I loved that job. I think my favorite thing most simply was that I was really able to be a generalist. Every single day was completely different. Um, whether I was meeting with a tenants rights advocacy group or um, sex rights or, um, or tax law, it was different every day. And I really loved having the opportunity to meet with so many different community groups who were so committed to their issue area, many of whom were doing so on their own time in addition to their full-time job. And I was so inspired by our city really for how invested so many of our neighbors are in making our community a better place in addition to their full-time job. Um, so that, that was my favorite piece about going into the office every day. Did, uh, did uh, Carl Racine give you any advice uh, before you decided to run or before your first day on the council or both uh, for uh, how, to, how to take us on? <laughs> One piece of advice he gave me very early on was, you got to like people to do this job. And I said to him, I hope you know the answer to that by now. <laughs> um, I hope that's not a, a question you have in your mind. Um, but that was helpful advice. But no, he's, he's, he's given me a lot of helpful advice over the years. I mean, one of, one of the lines he said to me once that I meant a lot to me um, very early on when I started working for him was, the better you get at it, the more you can do, the more people you can help. Um, and I thought that that was such an inspiring message for me. And I think about that all the time as the more I study or meet with a different group or um, read a different perspective or article, the, the better I can get at the job and the more people I can help. And so that is something that, that certainly sticks with me. Are there particular uh, role models you look to, like either people that you personally have known or uh, historical or figures or um, who, who do you look to as a model? Robert F. Kennedy is a huge role model to me. Um, I read and listen to his speeches very often and he's, he's always a, a model of, of hope and commitment and reaching out and kind of saying what's on your mind um, that I'm always consistently inspired by. 
Um, the Deputy Attorney General, while I was there, Natalie Ludaway has been a wonderful mentor and leader to me as well. Um, judge Williams, who I worked for in the US Court of Federal Claims, she's actually the judge who swore me in um, my swearing in ceremony at the end of June. Um, she is a wonderful, a wonderful mentor. And she's someone who also had um, this training period as well when I worked for her. I would, you know, spend weeks writing an opinion and she'd say, okay, now write, write it coming out the other way. Um, and I thought that was great and a great experience at the time. It was, you know, <laughs> not such a great experience. Um, but after the fact, it, it's kind of similar to what I was talking about with law school. I think it's helpful for me as a legislator now um, and as a community leader to make sure as we're bridging this divide between opinions and making sure that we're not living in such a divisive, unnecessarily villainous environment that we can communicate with one another and explain to one group why the second group feels the way they do and hopefully come up with some compromise. So th those are some of the, uh, the wonderful non-familial mentors I've had. Uh, speaking of, the, of both, uh, being able to see both sides of things, where do you cite yourself? There's you know, much talk of the council increasingly having a, a progressive wing and a traditional wing. Um, where do you sort of cite yourself on that spectrum? You're not going to like this answer. I, I, don't, I always laugh at that um, because there's this tendency to want to kind of plot council members along this ideological spectrum. And I just think it's an inaccurate framework. I am a Democrat. I'm proud to be a Democrat. I believe deeply that our government is here to serve people and here to provide resources to those who need an additional leg up, um, is here to provide regulation and oversight. Um, and I also believe government is here to be fair and be transparent. And I don't think that that is a more left Democrat or more moderate Democrat kind of way of thinking about it. I like to think of myself as a reasonable person who considers each issue as it comes before with the with the grounding that government at its core is here for people. And so that that's what drives me. That makes sense. <laughs> so, so, sorry if that's not the exact. I, I was hoping you gave me like a one to 10 number, but I knew that was. <laughs> I knew that was. Has anybody uh, given you that? Uh, no, I, I just, you know. <laughs> um, the other question I have is we're getting sort of towards the end of our time, I think. Um, through your, uh, pro your campaigning process and your introduction to DC as a public figure, the criticism of you, in a way I don't remember seeing with anyone else, has focused almost exclusively on your family on your background. And I just wanted to get a sense from you, how does that, and not to be a, 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 to psychoanalyze you, but how does that make you feel? I, you know, it's, it, our families are our core. And to have almost all the criticism of you focused in one way or another at your family, what, talk to me about that. Hmm. Well, you know, it strikes me that Part of this has to do with age. If I was 60 years old, nobody would be talking about my parents. Um, I am 28 years old. I speak for myself. Um, and if anybody has any questions about 
me or my votes or my views or my decisions, I would love to chat with them about that. I think it's a little unusual um, to focus on, on family. They're not the ones who have put themselves out here and run for public office. With that being said, I love my family. I am proud of my family. I'm the youngest of three children. I'm incredibly close with my brother and sister and my parents, um, all of whom are also proud Democrats and have raised me to be a, a person who wants to give back to society, contribute to my community, stand up, show up every day. And so I'm really proud of them as people and grateful for the familial environment that they raised me in and continue to provide such love and care with. So I, I hope that any, any criticism people have, have given, they give me the chance to, to prove them wrong and to, to do my best that I can at this job and to engage with me if I'm doing something you disagree with. Um, I may agree with you once you present the better case. I'm very open-minded. Um, so I hope that people will give me the benefit of the doubt to do so, um, and I will continue doing the same. Okay, I'm going to ask you one question. While you're answering that question, I'm going to quickly look over to Facebook because we are on Facebook Live and just see if any uh, any good questions have come in there. Okay, and then we'll great. We'll close that question. So that's what the next couple of minutes will look like. The question I'd like you to answer while I'm quickly checking Facebook and multitasking is where do you, you spoke about being younger, um, where do you see yourself in 20 or 30 years when you'll still be in the heart of your career, where will it be? What, what do you imagine or hope that you'll be doing? Mm -hmm. Well, I got great advice when I was a tax associate, um, which was do not make a lifelong plan because it will never happen. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's kind of how I've found. I, I haven't had this kind of perfectly linear path to get where I am now. I've wanted to give back. I wanted to be in public service. I really liked the intersection of government law and policy and that, that interest has kind of driven me to this point. Um, so we'll see right now I'm really focused on serving and leading the residents of Ward 2 and helping everybody get through this, this crisis of COVID-19 and implementing the really important demands of the protesters right now for racial justice, criminal justice reform. And that is my focus. That is my focus for now. And I, I really have no idea where I'll be in 20 years, certainly in DC, um, maybe, maybe in a different home. I live right now with three roommates. So maybe uh, in a different home in the city, but that's about all I know at this moment. Okay, well, we are gonna go to now to our um, closeout question. Uh, this is a question we've asked of all of the council members. I have to find my uh, prop for this. Um, uh, which is, I want you to take this list of items, which you know, you should be able to see that, uh, candy, cookies, ice cream, and pie, and rank them from your favorite to your least favorite. Wow. <sighs> Hardest question of the day. Okay, we're gonna go ice cream one, cake two, cookies three, candy four, pie five. I will add, you have a master spreadsheet. All Now all 13 of the sitting council members have been gracious enough to answer this question. 
which I've put into a spreadsheet of the ranking. It's kind of like a dessert Myers-Briggs thing. And we can figure out if there's certain personality types that go with certain uh, wow. rankings. We should have elected officials do the Myers-Briggs and post our, our reports publicly. Yeah, I think, I, I think there's value in it. it it's interesting. Pi is, is very polarizing. It's either one or five. Top of the list or bottom of the list. Where, what are your listing of those? I'm um, ice cream, candy, cookies, cake pie. All right, we've got the same one in five. Yeah, so we've got some, yeah, we're the same at the, at the ends. Uh, Chairman Mendelssohn, to no one's surprise, rhubarb pie is his <laughs> so, so, so he's part of the pie coalition. Um, wow, yeah. this is I good to know. I'm going to pull that up and that when yeah. you're not suspecting it, middle of the hearing. If you're having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, just, oh, I had this rhubarb pie sitting around my office. You know, would you like a slice? And that Right, that'll be a good leverage chip. <laughs> um, but anyway, viewers, I will update uh, the dessert spreadsheet and post it to social media so you can start to uh, analyze co possible coalitions. Uh, but unfortunately, we are just about out of time. So um, thank you very, very much uh, for joining us. I hope the next time we'll be able to get more uh, directly into policy. Uh, but it's mandatory. The first show is this getting to know you uh, show. So you have that behind you. And from here on out, it'll be more uh, straight up uh, policy discussions. Um, but thank you very much for taking time out of what will be a very busy uh, last few months of the council uh, period. So thank you Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Great to see you, Josh. And as I said, thank you for your wonderful service for all of district residents. I'm certainly a huge fan and I know many are as well. So thank you for having me for all you do. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Um, and thank you listeners uh, for joining us. A reminder to sign up for the Hearing and Council podcast, which you can sign up for wherever you get your podcasts. Um, also tune in, we're on DC Radio at 96.3 uh, FM HD4 or dcradio.gov. And as always, a reminder, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you. Bye-bye.